Today on Categorical Imperatives, we return to the Kyle Rittenhouse case. We will look at why the judge decided to drop the misdemeanor gun charge as a matter of law. We will then be discussing the dumpster fire that was the defense's closing arguments. Now, we will be talking about what happened there and how it may affect the outcome of the case. All right, greetings and welcome back once again to Categorical Imperatives. As always, I am your host, Lockheed Liberal, and I do want to thank you all so much for joining me here today. Now, if you are new to the program, I would especially like to welcome you. This is a podcast where we're going to be using legal theory and moral philosophy to discuss current events related to law, politics, and culture. Now, I got a whole hell of a lot of stuff to get through here today, so let's just jump the fuck right in. So, Judge Schroeder, the Kenosha County judge uh, in the case, handed a huge win to Kyle Rittenhouse's defense team before closing arguments when he dismissed a misdemeanor gun charge against the teen. Now, legal experts had considered the misdemeanor gun charge, which carries up to 12 months in jail, to be the easiest charge for the state to prove. So, ahead of uh, closing arguments that were just heard earlier today, Judge Bruce Schroeder ruled the Wisconsin's open carry law is so confusingly written, it could be interpreted to mean 17-year-olds can openly carry firearms as long as they're not a short-barreled rifle. He believed the jury could only convict if prosecutors proved that the barrel of Rittenhouse's rifle was less than 16 inches and had an overall length of shorter than 26 inches. Now, the judge's decision stunned the prosecutors who argued his interpretation of the law did not make sense. They said under the judge's interpretation, it would be illegal for a 17-year-old to carry brass knuckles in Wisconsin, but permissible to carry a semi-automatic rifle. Now, that may seem strange as a matter of policy, but a quick look at the statute suggests that the judge is likely, likely correct. And that statute is Wisconsin Criminal Law Section 948.60. And this deals with possession of a dangerous weapon, which is defined to include any firearm as well as many other weapons by a person under 18. Now, the relevant part of the law for us is subsection 3C. Now, this section applies only to a person under 18 years of age, who possesses or is armed with a rifle or a shotgun. If the person is in violation of section 941.28 or is not in compliance with subsection 29.304 and 29.593, then subsection 3C thus specifically excludes rifle and shotgun possession, as opposed to a handgun possession, by under 18-year-olds unless they are a short-barreled rifle, which is what Section 941.28 would deal with. So, Section 
the this is the exclusion uh, of people who are not in compliance with 29.593 that it may complicate things related to section 29.304 uh because it deals with hunting by people who are under 16 year old so section 29.593 provides in relevant part a requirement for certificate of accomplishment to obtain a hunting approval So the relevant part of the law for us is subsection 1A, which says that except as provided under subsection 2, 2M, and 3, and section 29.592, no person born on or after January 1st of 1973 may obtain any approval authorizing hunting unless the person is issued a certificate of accomplishment under section 29.591. This is what governs hunter education programs. So returning to 29.593, one could therefore read the Wisconsin law as allowing under 18 year olds to possess long guns only if they have an approval authorizing hunting based on certificate of accomplishment or based on out of state or military training or on hunting with a mentor which is what the exception seems to refer to. Indeed, perhaps that was the entire point of subsection 3C, to allow rifle and shotgun possession by young hunters who have been properly trained. But that's not how subsection 3C is framed. It asks whether someone is in compliance with 29.593, and since 29.593 only govern obtaining any approval authorizing hunting, which is something that Rittenhouse was not seeking. Section 29.593, after all, would not create a general duty of compliance or a general obligation to get hunter education. It simply states the conditions for which one may obtain an approval authorizing hunting. Say you were born after 1973, and you don't have a hunting license, would you say that you are not in compliance with 29.593? I doubt it. I think that you would say you just aren't covered by 29.593 until you seek approval authorizing hunting. Now, a Wisconsin Legislative Council in 2018 offered an information memorandum that stated... Under Wisconsin law, with a certain ex exception for hunting, military service, and target practice, a person under the age of 18 is generally prohibited from possessing or going armed with a firearm, but the memorandum doesn't discuss 29.593 subsection 3C. And this is where we get to the rule of lenity. So the rule of lenity is a judicial doctrine requiring that those ambiguities in a criminal statute relating to prohibition and penalties be resolved in favor of the defendant if it is not contrary to legislative intent. It embodies a presupposition of law to resolve doubts in the enforcement of a penal code against the imposition of a harsher punishment. The courts, while construing an ambiguous criminal statute that sets out multiple or inconsistent punishments, 
should resolve the ambiguity in favor of the more lenient punishment. So, so moving on to the defense. Now, on the legal merits, Kyle Rittenhouse ought to be acquitted by a unanimous jury on every one of the five felony counts against him, with the state having failed to prove provocation beyond a reasonable doubt and having failed to disprove self-defense beyond a reasonable doubt. And that may still happen. I certainly hope it does. He deserves those acquittals. But that said, uh, I'm well aware that sometimes defendants who deserve acquittals end up getting convicted regardless. There might be many reasons that this could occur. One of those reasons is a weak legal defense, and particularly a weak defense in that critical closing argument. That is your last opportunity for the defense team to plead their narrative of innocence to the jury. If the defense effort, particularly in the closing argument, is as close to perfect as a skilled attorney can hope to deliver, and a client gets convicted regardless, well, at least I would say from my own perspective, uh, that you could say, uh, at least I know that I did the best I could, and things didn't go tits up because I could have done more and failed to. So when an effort uh, is far short of perfect upon delivery, uh, again, particularly in relation to a closing argument, and the client deserving of acquittal gets convicted, then one is always left to wonder whether a better, better closing argument might have made the difference and whether more had been done, the client could still be free today. Kyle Rittenhouse deserved a much better closing argument than the one he got. And if he is convicted on any of those charges, I would find it hard to not attribute such an injustice to much of anything except today's weak closing argument by his attorney, Mark Richards. Uh, except, of course, for the uh, politically motivated nature of the prosecution itself. But that is, of course, precisely what the defense is supposed to be there to stop. Now, the weakness in the defense's closing argument really fell into two broad categories with a bit of overlap. One category uh, is weakness that includes aspects that are inherent to the closing itself and aspects that diminish the closing irrespective of anything the prosecution is arguing. So these are really own goals, you could say. There's no good excuse for these at all. The second category of weakness is more a failure to anticipate and account for the perfectly foreseeable points the state was likely to make on rebuttal. The defense must anticipate these because they will not have an opportunity to speak to the jury again after that rebuttal. Perhaps the single biggest weakness I saw in the defense's closing argument which was really apparent from the very first moments that attorney Mark Richards was speaking to the jury, and which I suppose was predictable by his generally gruff demeanor, uh, 
And this is why I, I, I think that attorney Corey uh, uh, Shirovsky, I, I don't know if I'm saying that right. Uh, this is why Kyle's other attorney should really have done the defense's closing argument. And this is because of the angry and personal tone that Richards took with the prosecution. So, let me be perfectly clear here. There's no question in my mind the prosecution in this case has earned every bit of that anger. The state has played fast and loose with both the facts and the law in this case, which certainly will only make whatever violent riots occur if, if Kyle is acquitted even worse than making an honest case free of guile and malevolence. When cat burglaries start, can mass murders be far behind? This reporter isn't saying that the burglar is an inhuman monster like the Wolfman, but he very well could be. So, Professor, would you say it's time for everyone to panic? Yes, I would, Kent. Hordes of panicky people seem to be evacuating the town for some unknown reason. Professor, without knowing precisely what the danger is, would you say it's time for our viewers to crack each other's heads open and feast on the goo inside? Yes, I would, Kent. So, with him trying to gin up a conviction from nothing but a few crumbs left on the bakery floor, all with the goal of putting Kyle Rittenhouse into a cage for the rest of his natural life by legal means that are not soundly based on fact and law, is horrible. It is objectively wrong. The prosecution and the defense attorneys are both lawyers who work within the criminal trial setting, but their roles are very different. The inherent power of the state means that they are more tightly constrained than is the defense, or so it ought to be. The mission of the defense is a win-by-any-means-necessary strategy. Right. The foreman will pass the verdict to the bailiff. This verdict is written on a cocktail napkin, and it still says guilty. And guilty is spelled wrong. Eat. Now, it is the burden of the state to overcome the wily defense and achieve a conviction beyond a reasonable doubt to get the win for their client. So for the prosecution, the mission is, or is supposed to be, much different. The prosecution's mission is supposed to be justice, not merely winning by any means necessary. So, I have no doubt that Richards' anger and resentment towards the prosecution here is both genuine and well-founded. But that's not the point of a closing argument. A closing argument does not exist so that the defense counsel can air out his frustration with the game playing of the prosecution. Closing arguments exist so the defense can have the last final opportunity to compellingly communicate their narrative of innocence to the jury. This is the last chance that they will ever have to do that to secure that acquittal for the client. Even more important than usual, when the client overwhelmingly is deserving of an acquittal as Kyle certainly is here. So I suggest that using the closing argument 
as a forum for him to bitch and whine at the prosecution does not do anything at all to help secure that acquittal for Kyle, and especially not when a better choice of tone would likely have been far more effective. He ended up, at, at many points, taking a tone of, look at these rioters and looters and ar arsonists. They were all scumbags, and this prosecution is just a suit-wearing version of the same chaos. Now, it may feel good to say that, and it may, to some degree, even be true. But all I did was tell the truth. Of course you did, but there's the truth. And the truth. But all I did was tell the truth. Of course you did, but there... So, does it help to sell the narrative of innocence to the jury uh, if you are looking at this through entirely different eyes than those of the lead counsel themselves? So, I'll note here that the state has repeatedly referenced Kyle as a kind of vigilante, out looking for trouble until he found it, expecting to be treated as a hero, and, in the quote they took from his uh, social media page, just trying to be famous. And that came right from Kyle's own uh, TikTok account. And to the extent that the defense is presenting Kyle as someone they believed should be perceived as a heroic defender, and the people he shot or endangered as miscreants who had it coming only helps the prosecution paint their client in a negative light. And it really doesn't matter that the defense portrayal of Kyle is true. Now, to drive a narrative of innocence consistent with and not contrary to jurors' sympathies, uh, for this if the jury convicts on any of these charges, and they well might, it will be because the prosecution has been successful in fostering some degree of sympathy among the jurors for the people killed, maimed, and purportedly endangered at the hands of Kyle Rittenhouse. To put it another way, unless that's happened, an acquittal is already secured and the defense need not engage in this kind of fire and brimstone fist-pounding display at all. But, we simply can't know that, of course. So we must assume that some degree of sympathy for the victims, uh, the quote-unquote victims, has been successfully fostered by the prosecution. And, if that is so... You don't make ground with the jurors, in particularly by shouting your outrage about how these were horrible people. Instead, you just come across as unsympathetic, which of course will reflect directly on your client. Now, a better approach, in my own humble opinion, is to approach the jury not from one's own position as a righteously outraged defense attorney with a client facing potentially cataclysmic convictions for no good reason, but rather to come at it from the position of the jurors themselves. Acknowledge that the people who died were human beings, 
and that your client wished that they were still alive today. Even with respect to the initial aggressor, Joseph Rosenbaum, whose attack on Kyle triggered all else that followed, everyone would prefer that he were still alive today. Everyone wishes nobody died that night in Kenosha. And that is particularly true of Kyle, and that's how it should have been painted. That said, you would then point out that it, it was not your client's choice that these tragic events occurred. It was the result of choices of those others, essentially choices that compelled your client to exercise his privilege under Wisconsin law to defend himself from violent and life-threatening attack. You would do well to acknowledge that perhaps those people who attacked Kyle, especially at the second location, might have genuinely believed that they were acting to stop some kind of active shooter. They were mistaken, of course. Kyle was far from an active shooter, and it, 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 he was as far as it is possible to be, really, for reasons that we will be getting into here in, a, in just another minute. Now, perhaps even Rosenbaum's attack was triggered by personal demons that nobody but he could understand and which he found impossible to resist. Whatever the reason for their attack, no matter how well-intentioned or compelled by personal demons they might have been, none of that, and I mean none of that, in any way diminishes the privilege of your client to defend himself from their attack. You would want to convey to the jury that there's nothing your client wishes more than that Joseph Rosenbaum and Anthony Huber were still alive and with their loved ones, and that Gage Grosskreutz was unmaimed. That the world he would have chosen to live in today if it was up to him. If only those people and others had not violently stripped that option away from Kyle by their attacks, however motivated that threatened him with apparent imminent death. Now, the next big issue is the failure to, uh, at any point, step methodically through the elements of self-defense. So this next point may be uh, more a reflection of one my own personal temperament and is perhaps just a personal or professional preference uh, on my own part, but I would have been far, far more detailed and specific in stepping through every single element of self-defense as applied in each of those felony charges. For each count, I would have made it clear in plain language exactly what circumstances would lead Kyle to believe that he was facing an unlawful, forcible attack which uh, assumes his innocence, that the harm feared from the attack was either already inflicted or apparently immediately about to occur, which gives the uh, uh, condition of imminence, how the nature of the threat presented an apparent risk of death or serious bodily injury, which gives you uh, the uh, proportionality of the defense, and 
how all of this was not just reasonably believed, but objectively reasonable. Those are the four elements that you need to prove in an affirmative defense of self-defense. Innocence, imminence, proportionality, and reasonableness. So, for example, he failed to address with specificity an issue that came up not only during the trial, but in the, uh, in the prosecution's closing argument, where he was talking about the issue that Rosenbaum was unarmed. This would have been particularly useful in addressing the all-critical first attack by Joseph Rosenbaum. We have seen how, throughout the trial, ADA Binger has been making much of the argument that some of the people attacking Kyle were unarmed. Indeed, at one of the pretrial hearings, Binger actually argued that it could never be lawful for an armed man to shoot an attacker who was unarmed. So the defense ha ought to have had every expectation that much would be made in the closing argument about the unarmed nature of Rosenbaum's attack on Rittenhouse. And it should have been made crystal clear to the jury how deceptive that framing was. In particular, Rosenbaum was not merely fake rushing Kyle or poking Kyle with an index finger or even shoving Kyle forcibly backwards. Rosenbaum was fighting Kyle for control of his rifle. And in the context of the death threats that Ryan Balch and Kyle himself had testified to, the moment Rosenbaum began fighting for control of the rifle, he is no longer unarmed in any meaningful sense of the term. Instead, he is in the process of arming himself with a rifle, with Kyle's rifle. If Rosenbaum were picking up a dropped rifle from the ground under those circumstances, nobody would doubt that he was arming himself for the purpose of using that rifle on Kyle. By not merely picking up some other rifle, but fighting Kyle for his own rifle, Rosenbaum is actually creating an even greater threat than that because he is simultaneously disarming Kyle at the same time he arms himself. Now, unbelievably, no such argument was made by Richards during his closing arguments, and nothing even close to this, really. Now, I expect I know why, uh, because he approached this closing argument from his own perspective, as I said earlier, as someone to whom this argument was already obvious and apparent and intuitive, rather than from the perspective of a juror who had developed some kind of sympathy for these victims and their families, and for whom this notion of arming oneself with another guy's gun might not have been so obvious and intuitive. Now, by addressing this issue only vaguely, or not at all, Richard left a gap, just a wide opening for Krauss to wobble through in his own state rebuttal argument, where he went on at length about Rosenbaum's stat, uh, status as unarmed. Kyle brought a gun to a bar fight. He could have punched Rosenbaum or kicked him in the balls 
or struck him with the rifle as an impact weapon, anything other than firing four rounds into him for the purported offense of merely chasing him. Uh, next, he failed to concretely define uh, the imminence uh, to the jury. The failure to make the legal concept of imminence clear also left another gaping opening for Krauss to suggest to the jury that Kyle was not permitted to defend himself against the attacker that was immediately about to occur and avoid injury entirely. Rather, Krauss suggested, sometimes we just have to take a beating before we're privileged to defend ourselves, and Kyle didn't do that. Frankly, that's just an outright fucking misstatement of the law, uh, and in fact, a defender need not suffer so much as a scratch before being privileged to use deadly force in self-defense. In any case, the defense is unable to respond to any of this nonsense by ADA Krauss because they don't get to rebut the state's rebuttal. So, by necessity, such things must have been addressed prior to the defense's closing argument, and they simply were not. Now, I, personally, I think he did a lot of wandering around, uh, you know, as far as his thought process went, and that he should have been far more methodical in guiding the jury through the various steps. Personally, I would have preferred to see much more methodical project, uh, progression through each of these four elements of self-defense for each of the criminal charges so that the jurors had an easy, well-marked trail to a justification of an acquittal on each and every one. You don't want the jury to spend hours in deliberations hacking through what was 36 pages of jury instructions with a layperson's understanding and, just as importantly, their misunderstanding of legal concepts. Especially when they were so confusingly communicated by Judge Schroeder in the first place. Uh, and that was something interesting, too. Uh, just uh, when he was reading the instructions to uh, the jury, they were really, really unclear uh, and really scattered. And, I mean, at one point he had to stop and look something up and then correct himself. Uh, at another point, he actually dismissed the jury for a few minutes because he was getting that lost in his own jury instructions that he needed to completely gather himself before he went on addressing them. So, given that kind of uh, messy jury instructions, a methodical uh, guide to the charges by the defense would have been especially, especially crucial here. So, you want to show the jury the way in a step-by-step -step fashion. So, you say, you know, you start here. And this is how we, the defense, see the evidence. This is how we apply this particular legal condition. And that brings us right over here where we think this happens. And then over here. And then here. And now we have an acquittal. Okay, let's move on to count two. 
Now, as far as the element of reasonableness addressed by, uh, or from, I should say, Kyle's perspective, his age, and his circumstances. So, an absolutely critical facet of any claim of self-defense is that the perceptions, decisions, and actions be addressed from the uh, perspective of the actual defendant given their particular attributes and surrounding circumstances. This means taking into account abilities and disabilities, training and experience, and so forth. In this particular case, we have a 17-year-old Kyle Rittenhouse who found himself isolated and alone in horrifically chaotic circumstances, not of his own making, and facing an apparently lethal attack. Now, did Kyle make the best of all possible decisions in each of these use-of-force encounters? Uh, frankly, my own opinion is that he did. He, he very likely did. But that's not the point. Our concern is that a jury might not agree with that, at least initially. That a juror might have thought that with hindsight, there was a better option available. We can see how the prosecution pounded home on this point when they kept coming back to the idea that the first round to strike Rosenbaum broke his pelvis and probably left him instantly unable to further threaten Kyle. Yet, Kyle shot three more times, including the fatal shot to the back, or as the prosecutor kept calling it, the kill shot. Strictly speaking, with perfect hindsight, we can see that those successive three shots were probably actually not necessary, but does that make them unlawful? After all, isn't lawful self-defense conditioned on necessity? Actually, no. Lawful self-defense is conditioned on apparent necessity. And there is no way that in the brief .76 seconds in which Kyle fired his first and last shot into Rosenbaum, that Kyle could have known his first round had effectively knocked Rosenbaum to the ground. During that .76 second period, Rosenbaum continued to present as apparently diving and lunging for control of Kyle's rifle, and thus continued to present an apparent deadly force threat for each of those four rounds. Now, what, what I absolutely could not believe, I could not believe that Richard said this in his account, that we know those four shots are fine, after all, Jacob Blake took seven shots. So, Binger, ADA Binger, uh, touched on the question of whether all four of those rounds were genuinely necessary and therefore lawful, and whether that third or fourth shot, uh, which, as he kept referring to it in his you know typically emotional fashion, the kill shot to the back was unnecessary and unlawful, uh, which is what the state argued. Richard's response here was much less than not helpful. I think it was actively harmful. And again, because he approached the issue from his own perspective, 
rather than the perspective of a juror who had perhaps developed some sympathy for the victims in this case. Instead of speaking to this issue on the basis of self-defense law and what that provides for, and the reasonable perceptions of Kyle and his apparent circumstances in the context of his age, prior experience, current chaotic circumstances, and so forth, Richard used an argument that likely pissed off more than one juror. So let's take a step back here for a moment. Recall that these Kenosha riots were over the police shooting of Jacob Blake, something the prosecution touched on repeatedly. Well, the prosecution is not repeatedly mentioning the Jacob Blake catalyst of those nights of chaos because it is harmful to the prosecution to remind the jury of that. In fact, much of the word world still believes the false narrative that Jacob Blake was wrongfully shot seven times in the back by Kenosha police officers. Now this was later deemed justified and rightfully so. However, uh, there was certainly a genuine legitimacy to the protests that followed, and perhaps a bit of uh, an attitude of, well, I don't like it, but I understand what's coming. So, uh, really, from, from even for some of the less prominent property damage that was caused by the actual rioters, uh, in other words, there were a lot of people who genuinely, though mistakenly, believe that the shooting of Blake was, as they put it, a profound social injustice. Now, with this background in mind, and assuming that there are, uh, prospectively, at least several people on that jury uh, who feel that the shooting of Blake was unjustified, how did Richards decide to contextualize Kyle's firing four rounds into Rosenbaum? He told the jury, four rounds can't be that bad because he's seen cases right there in Kenosha where someone shot another person seven times and that was deemed to be fine. Now, Richards never named Jacob Blake, but I have to imagine that absolutely everybody in Kenosha knows the name of the guy who was shot seven times in what was later deemed a justified shooting. It should go without saying that anybody who believes that the shooting of Jacob Blake seven times in the back was an obvious social injustice is going to feel far more favorable to Kyle for having shot Rosenbaum four times, including in the back, is the analogy that was being made by his defense attorney. At one point, he even said, a gun is a gun, a bullet is a bullet. Now, this, in my opinion, was another dropped ball in the context uh, of the argument that we saw uh, in the third count uh, as far as uh, the incident with Gage Grosskreutz and sort of the argument of Kyle's being armed with an AR-15 versus Rosenbaum's Glock handgun. Now, this issue was raised by the prosecution numerous times throughout the trial. 
Binger suggested to the jury that, you know, hey, all Grosskreutz had was a pistol. In contrast, Kyle had this big, giant, powerful AR-15 uh, with a 30-round magazine loaded with full metal jackets. That can't be fair, he claimed. Richard's only response to this was a really disappointingly dismissive one, and that was when he said, and again as I quote, Hey, guns are guns and bullets are bullets. Now, from his perspective, as a criminal defense attorney, uh, and I would agree with him on this, that is pretty much 100% right. From a legal perspective, it's all deadly force. Both a pistol and a rifle are readily capable of causing death and serious bodily injury under the circumstances in place, and there's really no legal distinction between them. But that's probably not how a jury is going to see it. A pistol and a rifle are, in fact, different, and they have different capabilities. And there was testimony uh, to this at the trial. Typical police body armor can stop pistol rounds, but not AR rounds. Pistols are routinely carried for personal protection in public, while ARs are only rarely used so. Now, pistols have a relatively short range, but an AR can shoot accurately and deadly out to at least 550 yards. So, in these and many other obvious ways, the Glock pistol of Grosskreutz and the AR-15 of Kyle are substantially different. And simply dismissingly saying that guns are guns and bullets are bullets did not at all adequately address that concern. Instead, Richard should have conceded that it's true that in many respects the pistol and the rifle here are very different but that they were not different in a way that applied to these particular circumstances. Since this was not a case where the two men were 550 yards apart, for example, so that the rifle was effective but the pistol was harmless. Under these circumstances, either weapon was readily able to inflict death or serious bodily injury to another, and therefore there was no meaningful distinction between them for the purpose of this trial. Now, I would also add to this uh, the point that I think is very important, that the reason, well, Kyle, he may have chosen the AR-15 anyway, but we need to remember, uh, the reason he had an AR-15 is because you can carry a long gun in public at his age. To carry a handgun in public you must be 21 years old. This means that for Kyle to arm himself, and for so essentially for him, if he ends up having to use his firearm with someone else who has a firearm, uh, a, a rifle is the only thing that he can have. It's really not his fault that the law doesn't allow him to have the same kind of more concealable, uh, smaller, uh, weapon like a Glock pistol. Alright, well anyways, uh, that's pretty much all I got for you here. Uh, I may add on more to this in the coming days, uh, and then I will certainly 
uh, be back. Whenever the verdict drops, I will be uh, putting out a video talking about that and going through uh, the verdict, whatever it is. So, look, if you liked the video, please take a moment and hit that thumbs up button. Uh, if you disliked it, go ahead and hit that thumbs down button. Uh, if you want to leave me a comment in the comment section, I always really enjoy hearing from you guys. Uh, and, you know, I always like being able to talk with you guys about uh, the topics of my video. So please leave me a comment. Let me know what you thought. And if you are not subscribed to the channel, take a moment. Just click that button right over there that says subscribe. It only takes a little second to click. And you will know every time I upload new videos. And if you are able to go the extra mile and help support the show uh, by either becoming a patron of the show over on Patreon for as little as two bucks a month or through leaving a tip in my PayPal tip jar, uh, both are welcome. You can find links to where all of those sites are down in the video description. And if you're not in a position to uh, support the show in that way right now, that's all right. I still appreciate you coming by and spending your time here with me today all the same. So until next time, this has been Locking Liberal for Categorical Imperatives, talking once again about the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. And of course, as always, Dave Linda at Carthago.